13, 31 through 35. Just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to him, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stoned those sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate, and I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Father, we want to say that today. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is your son coming into the world to save us. And we pray that as we think about him, that you would warm our hearts, that you would teach our minds, that you would encourage our spirits today. Please, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we look directly at these five verses, I just want to go back to the passage that we looked at on Wednesday night, verses 22 through 30, and point out to you from there that the gospel that we believe, the gospel we proclaim, is filled with paradoxes. And we said that on Wednesday night, and we say it again this morning. That is to say that the gospel message, the message of forgiveness of sins and eternal life in Jesus, is replete with statements that on the surface of things and to the natural mind don't seem like they would fit together, but which are actually profoundly and wonderfully true and harmonious. That's what a paradox is. Two statements that on the surface don't seem like they'll fit together, but which are actually wonderfully and harmoniously true. And the gospel message, we said Wednesday, and I say again this morning, is full of those kinds of things. I just want to give you a few examples from Wednesday evening's passage. First... You might notice that the last verse of that passage, verse 30, in and of itself is a statement of a paradox. How can it be, as Jesus says here, that some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last? That's a paradox, isn't it? It doesn't make sense to our natural mind to say, if you're first, you might really be last, and if you're last, you might really be first. But it's absolutely true. Namely, some people who, in their self-assuredness and religious pride, think that they're at the very front of the line that leads through the gates of heaven are actually going to discover in that last day that they were never very near the gates at all because no one goes to heaven on account of his or her own merits. We go to heaven on the coattails of Jesus. And since that's how the good news works, there are other people who know good and well that they belong at the very end of the line who know they have no business going through the door that leads into eternal life, and they're the ones who actually get in. Why? Because they're not relying on their own do-betters and try-harders. They're not relying on the fact that they think that they have pushed their way to the front of the line. They're relying on the finished work of Jesus. And so Luke 13.30 is a paradox that doesn't seem to make sense when you first read it. Some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. But it is perfectly and marvelously True. And then we could say the same kind of thing when we compare Luke 13.24 with Luke 13.29. 
That is to say that on the one hand, verse 24, Jesus makes it clear that the door which opens up into eternal life is a narrow door. In other words, heaven is not a free-for-all. People must come when God commands, verse 25, and they must also come how God commands, namely on their knees, trusting not in themselves but in Christ alone. So the door that opens into eternal life, Jesus says, is a narrow door. And yet it's also true in verse 29 that a great crowd is going to come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. A great crowd of people is going to enter that door. The dining hall of heaven, verse 29, is going to contain the largest banqueting table that you've ever seen in your life. And it will be filled with people, all of whom came through an exceedingly narrow door. And so here we have another paradox. The narrowest of doors leads to the grandest of banqueting halls. How can it be that a door so narrow and yet people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation find the door and enter it? Well, that's the paradox and more importantly, that's the power of the gospel. In fact, we could even say that the most basic statement of the gospel is itself paradoxical. If you were trying to give the most basic statement of the gospel, there are several passages you could look at, but one that we know well is Romans 5.8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the fact of the matter is, when we tell people that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, we ought to get some funny looks in response. Why? Well, because as Paul points out in Romans 5, 7, and in his common sense and human nature is well aware, most people would be hard-pressed hard pressed to lay down their life for a righteous person, someone they really liked and cared for, someone who'd been really good to them. But to lay down your life for someone who has spent their life ignoring you and shaking their fist at you and turning their back on you, that seems illogical, doesn't it? And yet that's what the verse says. It's gospel truth. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So I hope you see the point. The Bible is constantly telling us things that ought, at least at first, to boggle our minds. There's a whole other world out there, the world of the gospel, in which things do not work the way that people on this earth would think that they should work. Narrow doors open into gigantic dining halls. People go to heaven not because of what they do, but because of what someone else has done on their behalf. God loves people who stick their fingers in His chest and turn their backs on Him and sent His only begotten Son to save them from their sins. And we should say to all that, thank God. Thank God the gospel doesn't work the way the natural man would think it would work. Thank God for the paradoxes in the Bible. And I go back over all of that ground, first of all, because I thought it was so refreshing to see on Wednesday and I wanted you to see it or see it again this morning. But I also spend all that time talking about gospel paradoxes because everything that we're about to see in Luke 13, 31 through 35 fits under that category. This is a strange passage if you pay close attention to what it says. On the one hand, Jesus presents himself and is presented in this passage as being absolutely in control of every situation, even what other people are doing or are going to do. Notice, he defies the king in verse 32a. He controls the demons in verse 32b. He controls human sickness in verse 32c. He determines his own schedule 
in verse 32d and then again in verse 35. He even controls, verse 33, when and where he's going to die. He's in control of all of these things. Jesus is not ruled by anyone else's will or anyone else's wishes, not even the king. But he accomplishes what he chooses when he chooses. That's the Jesus that's presented to us, not only in Luke 13, but in all the scriptures. He's absolutely sovereign and does what he plans. And yet amazingly, paradoxically, we're told in verse 34 that he wanted to gather the people of Jerusalem under his wings the way a hen gathers its chicks. He wanted them to live and be brought into his family, but it didn't happen because they would not have it. So which is it? Is Jesus in control of everything that's going on? Or is it that we mere mortals are left to make decisions about him and left with responsibility for what we do? Which is true, divine sovereignty over all human affairs or that each human being is responsible for what he or she does with Jesus? Well, it seems to me if we take these verses and the rest of the Bible seriously, both are true. Both of those things are true. Jesus does what he wants, when he wants, and not even someone as powerful as King Herod can deter his plans. And yet, though he says he wanted to gather the people of Jerusalem to himself, he did not do it. Precisely because they themselves, he says, would not have it. And I say again, that's a paradox. Those are two puzzle pieces that seem like they're taken from two entirely different boxes. And yet, they're both part of the same gospel picture that's consistently presented to us. And with the majority of the time we have left, I want to think those two pieces of the puzzle out. I want us to think about what this passage and other passages teach us about divine sovereignty and about human responsibility. So consider, first of all, then, the issue from these verses of divine sovereignty. The fact that Jesus is in control of everything that's going on in this world and all around him. Now, before we look at what Jesus does, I should point out to you that James, the brother of Jesus, warns us as follows in the fourth chapter of his epistle, namely verses 13 through 15. Come now, he says, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now that's good counsel, isn't it? None of us knows what our life will be like tomorrow. We don't even know, James says, whether we'll live, much less whether we'll do this or that. And we would do well, all of us, to take James's counsel and add the phrase, Lord willing, to our daily vocabulary. Lord willing will do this or that. But it's interesting to note here in Luke 13 that Jesus did not talk that way, nor did he need to. In fact, Jesus seemed very comfortable announcing what he would do today or tomorrow or a year from now, doesn't he? Very comfortable. He's not like us. That's the point. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but Jesus does. Jesus never had to say Lord willing because Jesus is Lord. And whenever he's willing, then he simply does what he's willing to do. And listen to the way this passage describes that fact. Listen to the way he himself describes that fact here. Some folks came to warn him in verse 31 that he was a marked man, that Herod the king had designs on taking his life. 
But you'll notice that Jesus wasn't in the least concerned about those things. He didn't begin to fret. He didn't begin to make plans or change his plans or change the route that he was going to go. All the things that we would do and some of the things that we would do rightly, we would say, boy, I shouldn't go that way. I should go kind of around this way and protect myself. You think about the the wise men and they went back another way because Herod threatened them. That's what we would do. But Jesus doesn't do that. And it's not simply because he's stoic. It's because he's in control of the situation. And so he responds to the threats in verse 32 by saying, look, I'm in charge of the calendar. And I have a three-day plan here. And Herod's not going to do anything to deter my plan. So that fox, Herod, you go and tell him that he can't lay a finger on me until I reach my goal, until I finish my task. I'm heading to Jerusalem. I'll be there in three days. You can tell him he'll see me there. But nothing's going to stop me. That's the point Jesus is making in verse 32. Herod, humanly powerful as he was, was not in charge of what would happen to Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was in charge of that. And though there were no bodyguards to protect Jesus and no real human reason why we could find that Herod could not have gone through with his plans, as we read the rest of Luke, we find that it played out just the way that Jesus said it would and not the way that Herod thought that it should. Jesus decided when he would arrive in Jerusalem. Jesus decided when he would die and all of these things. Jesus is in control of Human events. Even events we're seeing as he talks back and forth with Herod through these intermediaries. Jesus is in charge even of events that have to do with other people's desires and wills. Now that fact is underscored in verse 33. Because not only does Jesus say he decides when he'll get to Jerusalem, but he says he's going to decide when and where he dies. It cannot be, he says, that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus is now saying... Not only could Herod not touch him until the appointed time, but Herod can't touch him until he reaches the appointed place, namely Jerusalem. And again, I think the point is clear. Even when someone as powerful as Herod is hell-bent on one thing, if Jesus says something else, then things go the way Jesus says, not the way Herod says. Jesus is in control of human events. And we see this also there in the middle of verse 32 where Jesus announces that he will be casting out demons and curing sicknesses. And once again, that point is obvious. Jesus is in control. He can enforce his will even against the stubborn, powerful wills of the evil spirits. Far more powerful than the will of Herod, Jesus can enforce his will upon them, and he can even do so over effects of the fall, like sickness. And you'll even notice that Jesus tells the crowds in verse 35 exactly what it is that they're going to be chanting when he arrives in Jerusalem. And sure enough, when he arrives, Luke 19:38, we find the people saying just what Jesus said they would say. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because Jesus is in control of human events, even events that involve the actions and decisions of other people. And of course, Luke 13 is just one of many places in the New Testament, New Testament that demonstrates this, isn't it? I want to show it to you in a few other passages. You may remember Luke chapter 4, where the inhabitants of Jesus' own hometown, Nazareth, became angered by his teaching, and they determined that they were going to kill him by throwing him off a cliff at the edge of the town. And in fact, they got him all the way in verse 29 of Luke 4, all the way out to the edge of the cliff, just where they wanted him, right within inches of premature death. But then we read in Luke 4.30, very simply that passing through their midst, He went on his way. 
And there's no explanation given. It's not that someone gave a speech and sort of calmed everyone down and changed everyone's mind. It's not that we're told that Jesus fought his way through the crowd. It's simply that he passed through the crowd and went on his way. How? Well, because he was in control of the situation, not the people of Nazareth. He, the God-man, could stay the people's hands and walk through the crowd anytime he wanted to. And he obviously in that situation did. And that's commensurate with what he says about his own life and his own death in John 10. Verse 18, no one talking about his life, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. And then at the end of that chapter, John 10, when those people tried to stone him for these sayings, he proved that he was in command of when he lived and when he died by once again simply walking out of the angry crowd unscathed. In other words, those people could not let go of their stones to hurl at his head unless Jesus took his restraining hand off of their hands. And it wasn't his time, and so he didn't take his hand off of their hands. He is in control of human events, even events that involve other people's decisions. And perhaps one more example will suffice and drive this home. Do you remember when Jesus was preparing to make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the one that he prophesies here in verse 35? Do you remember what happened before he went in? you remember how he got his donkey that he rode in on? Just before he went in, in Luke 19, he sent his disciples into the village of Bethany to make preparations. And let me just read to you how those events and those preparations played out. Luke 19, 29 through 32. When he approached Bethpage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you'll find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went and found it just as he had told them. Just as he had told them. Same way we read in Genesis 1. God said this, and it was so. God said that, and it was so. Jesus said there will be a colt tied as soon as you enter the city. No one's ever sat on that colt. You untie it. They'll let you have it. And it was so. And the reason why Luke points that fact out is not because he's trying to hint to us that Jesus had memorized where everyone in the city kept their donkeys and which donkeys had been ridden on and which ones hadn't. That's not the point. The reason Luke points out that it happened just the way Jesus said is because he's wanting us to understand that Jesus is the God-man who is sovereign over where all owners of all donkeys tie up their beasts. And if he wants that donkey to be where it is, or where it's going to be, then it will be where he wants it to be. And I share that example simply to point out that Jesus controls events, not just events that had to do with his own life or death. It's not as though he sort of took control when it was really serious. But even in things like donkeys, he's in control. And if he determines that a heretofore unridden donkey will be tied up and along such and such a fence line, then that donkey will be there, just as he said. Jesus is sovereign. Just the way Paul wrote about God the Father, we can say about God the Son, Ephesians 1.11, He works all things after the counsel of His will. Father, Son, and Spirit are sovereign over life's details. Now, as an aside, we should note that if Jesus was in control of all these details in the days of the New Testament, there's no reason to think that He's not identically so this morning. 
In other words, he's just as much sovereign over modern-day Herods and modern-day donkeys as he was 2,000 years ago. He's just as sovereign over your boss and your car and your air conditioner and your finances and your health as he was then. And that means that no detail in your life is random. And no difficulty in your life is beyond his wise control, isn't it? And no blessing comes to you except by his hand. So whatever strange things or whatever magnificent things have been happening in your life in recent days, apply the truth of these verses to them. Your times are in his hands. And he's working all these things after the counsel of his will and for the good of his people. And you should praise him for that. And you should back up and just marvel at his power and his sovereignty on display in your life. And when you can't see how it's all going to play out, you should trust his wisdom in all of these things. And remember that not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from God's wise control and that you are worth more than many sparrows. Now, before we leave this issue of divine sovereignty and to help us recognize the paradox that's being presented to us in these last five verses of the chapter, I want you to notice briefly, too, what the Bible says about Father, Son, and Spirit and their sovereignty over matters of our own souls and our own destinies eternally. That's the issue that's at stake in verse 34. And so I just want to give you a few verses to demonstrate that even there, the same Jesus that we see here is the same Jesus that we see when we talk about our own souls and our own destinies. John 6:44, No one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, He, the Father, chose us in Him, the Son, before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ. Or James 1.18, in the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. Or Romans 9.16, so then it, God's saving mercy and compassion, does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who shows mercy. And I think those verses and others like them are clear enough. If any of us are going to go to heaven, if any of us have been truly saved from our sins, God gets all the credit. It was His doing, it is His doing, and it's none of our own. He chose us before we chose Him. He reached out to us when our backs were turned to Him. He led us as we sing, hear His voice calling us before our voices ever called out to Him. He gets all the praise. And so the Father, Son, and Spirit the Bible teaches, are just as sovereign over our eternal destinies as Jesus was over the plans of Herod here in Luke 13. So overall, what we're saying is Jesus is in control, or as we read in Daniel 4.35, He, God, does according to His will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? That's a powerful verse. No one can ward off his hand and no one can accuse him of doing wrongly. And again, I just say that that truth is strikingly evident here in these last five verses of Luke 13. Jesus is absolutely in control of human events, even events that involve the decisions of other people. So that even the most powerful man in Israel, namely Herod, could not act on his own wishes unless Jesus allowed him to do so. But it's a very curious fact indeed that that's true, especially given what we read in verse 34. 
So having spoken for, spoken for several minutes about God's sovereignty, let me now show the other side of this paradox. Namely, verse 34 teaches very clearly human responsibility. Human responsibility. Even after all that we have rightly said about God's absolute sovereignty in the world, the fact remains here in verse 34 that Jesus longed to gather people together to himself. Verse 34, he was willing to save them, but they weren't saved. At least in Luke 13 they weren't saved, although many of these people in Jerusalem were saved marvelously in the book of Acts. And the explanation of that fact that the people in Jerusalem remained outside of Jesus' kingdom, his explanation was to say, you would not have it. In other words, Jesus says it was their fault that they didn't believe. It was their responsibility if they didn't come to Jesus. And we need to hear that well, because we could take all the verses that we've heard about divine sovereignty and come to the conclusion that if a person remains outside God's kingdom, it's somehow God's fault. That somehow God has been unfair to them. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Many times I would have gathered you, but you would not have it. Now surely God does whatever He pleases. Surely, as we were saying, He's sovereign over human will so that He can turn hearts toward Himself anytime He pleases. In fact, it's only because He does that any of us are saved to begin with. But that does not mean that human beings are off the hook of responsibility. It does not follow biblically to say that if God gets the credit, all the credit when someone is saved, that he must get the blame if they are not. That may come across as human common sense, but remember our minds are not what they should be. We're fallen. And it does not follow ever in the Bible to say that because God gets the credit when we're saved, he gets the blame if we're not. No. God commands all men everywhere to repent, Acts 17.30. To the extent that any man, woman, boy, or girl does not repent, then the Bible says that it's their own fault. They're without excuse, Romans chapter 1. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Now that's just the plain, bald truth of the text. If any person refuses to respond to the gospel and to come to Jesus, he has no one to blame but himself. And the same thing, incidentally, can be said about sin in general, can't it? If anyone sins, and all of us do, more often than we even realize, if anyone sins... Though God is sovereign over all of our human activity, and though God promises to work all things, even human sinfulness, after the counsel of His will and for the good of His people, the fact remains that we are responsible for our sins. In other words, Judas doesn't get any credit because he betrayed Jesus and God worked that for good, does he? The Roman soldiers don't get any credit because they crucified Jesus and God worked that for good. Why? Because they weren't doing it because they knew God was going to work it for good. They were doing it with a fist in God's face. And so when we sin, even if God works it for good, even though we know God will work everything for the good of His people, it's not God's fault that I sinned or that you sinned, even though He could have easily stopped me had He chosen to. Now, someone may argue, well, how in the world can both of these things be true? And that's just the point that 
we began with. How can it be true that salvation does not depend on man's willing and running, Romans 9, that no one can come to the Father unless Jesus draws him, John 6, that people are predestined before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1. How can those things be true that God is sovereign over who is and who isn't his child and at the same time we say that if we don't come to him, it's our own fault? The truth is that there are some ways that we can delve into that a little bit, but we can't ever fully reach the bottom. It's a paradox. In fact, Christians have been wrestling with this tension for 2,000 years. And as I said, there are some ways that we can help think it through a little bit further that we don't have time for this morning. But we can't ever come to the final answer this side of heaven because the Bible doesn't present it to us. And if you're uncomfortable with that, just remember that none of us in this room could give a bulletproof explanation this morning of how it could be that Jesus Christ could be 100% God and 100% man, both at the same time without having a split personality and without being two different individuals. But we read the Bible and we find it teaching that Jesus is fully God, and then we find other passages teaching he is fully man, and so we accept them both, even though we know our finite minds cannot quite put it all together and see how it makes sense. And I argue that the same is true here in Luke 13, 31 through 35. We're presented in this passage with a paradox. Jesus has all authority in heaven and in earth. He controls even the decisions that humans make. And yet, when humans decide not to bow the knee to him in repentance and faith, they are responsible. If I decide to sin... I am responsible for my sin and my unbelief. Both of those pieces of the puzzle, though they seem to come from two entirely different boxes, fit snugly together, even though we cannot, this side of heaven, see quite how. And we need to be content, as we were saying on Wednesday, to live within some of these Bible paradoxes. And we need to beware of trying to bend or stretch one set of biblical passages or the other in order to try to make it fit into the relatively limited confines of our own common sense. Did you know that your common sense is a very small box? Mine is as well. And we can try to fit things there that the Bible doesn't intend to fit there. So we need to simply let these two facts stand side by side in our minds. Think them through. There is more thinking to be done. But we need to let these two facts stand as true. A, if I believe in Jesus, if I am saved, it's wholly God's doing. It's because He chose me before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1. It's because He drew me to Jesus in space and time, John 6. It's because He, 2 Timothy 2, granted me repentance. And it's not because ultimately of my willing and my running, Romans 9. But B, if I do not believe, it is because I do not believe. It is because, not that God has been unfair to me, but because I myself would not have it. It is because even though I knew God, Romans 1, I did not honor Him as God or give Him thanks. I say that we have to let those truths stand side by side in our minds without trying to bend or alter either of them in order to make it fit into the small box that represents our own finite logic and common sense. And I believe that if we can get that straight, we'll be so helped in our evangelism. 
we won't fall off the horse in either direction. If I believe, it's wholly God's doing. If I do not, it's my responsibility. And as I said, there, there are further, further ways that we could untangle this a bit. I wish we had more time. But the scripture prevents us from all the way going, well, I just have this cinched. I can explain this to anybody. It's no problem. No, it is a difficulty. And though perhaps this paradox and leaving it as a difficulty will leave us maybe intellectually unsatisfied, I hope that it leaves our hearts warm. The main point is that God loves to save sinners. And He overcomes all human obstacles, even the stubbornness of our own hearts and wills and minds, in order to do so. And if anyone leaves this world without being saved, it's not because God was stingy or unloving. That's amazing. That's one way that we fit those things together. God loves to save sinners. He loves to do it. He overcomes everything in order to do it. And He's never stingy or unloving. And He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel 33, 11. I've been saying everything that I've said so far sort of with my teacher's cap on. I've been attempting so far primarily simply to instruct you in these two different Bible doctrines. But I want now to switch caps and put back on the garments of the preacher. In other words, having taught the doctrine that's presented in these verses, I want to now try to preach to you from verse 34 especially. So having thought about divine sovereignty and human responsibility, let's spend these last few minutes admiring and observing and responding to the love of Christ, especially as it's presented in verse 34. How much Jesus loves sinners. Isn't that clear from verse 34? That's the main thing in that verse. Jesus has been traveling to Jerusalem. And either in his mind's eye or perhaps on the distant horizon, he looks down upon the city and he longs for the people there. He longs for them to be gathered into his family. Incidentally, do you ever come around that last bend heading north into our city on I-75 and look down on the city as it's spread out before you and speak like Jesus speaks here? Do you ever find your heart looking down into our city saying, Oh, Cincinnati, Cincinnati, how I long to see the people of this city gathered to the Savior. We should pray that our hearts might look like Jesus' heart looks here in verse 34. He loves Jerusalem and He loves our city as well. But just look at His large-heartedness towards this great city. He longed for the people there in spite of themselves. Isn't that what He's saying? He longed for them. He loved them in spite of themselves. Here's the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. Here's the city that He knew full well was soon to kill Himself, the Son of God. Here's the city, as He says at the end of the verse, that has already rejected Him time and again as He has come to them in the voice of the prophets for hundreds of years. And we might think that Jesus would look down upon a city that's killed the prophets and stoned those who sent to her and was about to kill the Son of God and that He would loathe such a city the way Jonah thought about the people of Nineveh. I don't want to go to Nineveh. I don't like those people. Those are horrible people. That's what we might expect, again, in our human way of thinking, that Jesus would look down on the religious phonies, look down on the fickle crowds, and say, there's no way I want to go to Jerusalem. But He loved that city. And His love for Jerusalem is how a picture, is a picture of how He loves each of us, isn't it? 
We're like this city. How undeserving are we? How many times have we been ashamed of Him? Turned our backs on Him? Stoned Him with our words and with our actions? And yet He loves us nonetheless. How many times has someone been sent to us with the Word of God and we've gone away and ignored what was said? All of us. Often. And yet, here's Jesus. And He longs to gather us to Himself the way a hen longs to gather her chicks. And what an interesting picture that is. Jesus as a hen gathering chicks. That's another unusual thing about this passage. Normally, we're taught to think of God as spoken of all throughout Old and New Testaments in a masculine form. And we don't undermine that point even for a nanosecond this morning. But the fact remains that though God is male and the Holy Spirit is male and Jesus is male, here in Luke 13, Jesus says that He loves His people the way a mother, hen, loves her chicks. And there's something very similar, I think, between a mother hen and a mother human, isn't there? I don't mean that in a negative way, though some of you husbands may use it that way. But there's something about a mother hen and a mother human that's similar, isn't it? You watch a young mother at the park with her children holding their hands as they go across the parking lot or across the street. Eyes peeled even as they're climbing all over the place watching for danger. Running to them as soon as they fall. Dad's going, he'll be fine. Don't baby him. The mom runs to him. She corrals the children with gentleness when it's time to go, right? She gathers them together. We know what this looks like. How much mothers love their children and brood over them, making sure they have a balanced diet and ironed clothes and shoes that fit and all of these things. And here's a tiny little picture when we see a mother human or a mother hen, of the love that Christ has for His people. He longs that men and women and boys and girls would come to Himself so that He might care for them in every way, physical and spiritual. And He's gone a step farther than the mother hen and the mother human, hasn't He? In order to make sure that we are amply supplied, in order to make sure that we're gathered together, in order to make sure that every head is counted and accounted for, in order to make sure that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, Jesus laid down His life. He died for people like those in Jerusalem. So fickle, so foolish, so prone to wander like ignorant little chicks far too close to the serpent's den. And aren't we all that way? And yet He came into the world and He died so that He might rescue us and gather us and care for us and bring us safely into the Father's house. Indeed, we're told at the end of the verse that Jesus loves people like this even when they are rejecting Him. Jesus had already been rejected many times by this city. One or two times in His own personal ministry, but over and over and over again through the centuries. And yet He still longed over this city. He still went back to it again to teach the people and to perform more miracles there and to cast out demons there and to lay down His life there for the people there. And that's the explanation for what we read about in the book of Acts, isn't it? So many of these people who in Luke 13 would not have it miraculously changed their minds in the first few chapters of the book of Acts. You ever notice that? 
Jerusalem is presented in such a negative light here in verse 34, and rightly so. You would not have it. And yet, just a few chapters over, when we get to the book of Acts, they would have it. Why? Because though they were slighting him, Jesus didn't give up. He still loved them. He still went to them. He still died for them. Though they had rejected him time and time again, he still longed for their salvation. And that's the explanation for why many of us are forgiven and following Jesus, even this morning, isn't it? None of us, we've said before, are born a Christian. And many of us, in fact, have spent years actively rejecting Jesus. We've been in church, we've heard the gospel, we've heard him woo us and long for us and love us, and we would not have it. Some of us did that for a long time, and yet Jesus kept loving and kept longing and kept wooing and kept sending the good news to us and loving us in spite of ourselves. And that's the main point in verse 34. Jesus loves sinners. He longs for sinners to come to Him and He opens His arms or spreads His wings, as it were, to any and all who will come to Him in repentance and faith that He might gather them together and make them into the children of God. He longs for us. So I just say to you, whether you've come to Him and you need to come to Him again this morning and just embrace Him and thank Him again, or whether you've never come to Him in your life, though He's wooed you and called you again and again and again, would you not come to Him this morning? Some of you desperately need to do that. Some of you desperately need to get from Luke 13 to Acts chapter 2. You need to get from you would not have it to what must I do to be saved? Some of you know that you're not who you should be. You're not what God requires that you be. And perhaps you've wondered even if God is actually fed up with you. But I remind you that you're no worse off than the city of Jerusalem was 2,000 years ago. You've slighted Jesus, yes, but so had they. You've rejected His offers of friendship and forgiveness, some of you, but so had they. And so I say to you with all confidence, whoever you are this morning, if that Jesus stands, Jesus stands, and He looks down onto this assembly the way He looked on Jerusalem, and perhaps you would even hear Him calling your name two times as He did with the city and saying to you, how often I would have gathered you together as a hen broods over her chicks, but you would not have it. But here I am again today, and I hold my hands out to you once more again today, and you see the nail prints that are there, and you know that I want you to come. Wouldn't you come to me today? How often I've longed to gather you, Jesus says. Let's not walk away saying, I won't have it. Let's walk to him saying, what must I do to be saved? Let me bow my knee to you, Jesus.